Our primary reading this morning is from Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Would you listen now for the word of the Lord? Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who have called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you, Colin. Thank you for also outing me as a previous uh, Ark Encounter employee. It's, uh, <laughs> trying to keep that hidden, uh, so thank you for that. Um, <laughs> uh, there's a few things that I, I want to make clear, um, just a few points before I start on today's uh, hot take. Number one, uh, I want to point out that I am not a pastor. Let, let that sink in and let that be clear. I'm not a pastor. In fact, it's been seven years since the last time that I preached, so... Hopefully you'll go easy on me with the questions. Um, I've never experienced that before. Probably a better descriptor of what I am, um, if I'm not a pastor, what am I? Well, I like to call myself a Bible nerd, maybe Bible geek, uh, you know, if you prefer that term. But uh, yeah, I'm currently in seminary, um, but I, I really don't have a whole lot of interest in pastoral ministry. I just really, really like to nerd out about the Bible, about the biblical text, about what it would have meant to its original audience, um, you know, and, and how we can just get back into that original uh, culture, that original social context, that original historic context, and, and hear it on its own terms. And Pastor Colin has been, you know, gracious enough to invite this Bible nerd to come present a sermon for this hot take series, but he did make sure to remind me, and I quote, you've got to be pastoral. Hey, I've already told you I'm not a pastor, so we'll see how this goes. The second point that needs to be made, and hopefully this is an obvious point, um, but the name of this sermon series is Hot Takes. Uh, by the very nature of the series, the messages are going to be controversial, they're going to be uncomfortable, they might even be downright offensive. You know, some of you are probably going to disagree with me say that I'm wrong, or just flat out not like me by the end of this. And that's okay. I'm a big boy. I can handle disagreement. And plus, you get to roast me with questions at the end of this anyway, so go ahead and get your disagreements ready. But I think that's one of the things that I love about this church is that we have the space to bring our disagreements. We can wrestle with the text. We can even wrestle with our own theological convictions that may be held you know, by each of us. We don't have to have proper theological thinking to be part of the body of Christ. And I think that's what's really beautiful about the church and specifically about our little congregation here. 
um, is that we have room for disagreement. We have room to wrestle with the text and wrestle with one another because I think in the wrestling, we actually produce a more faithful witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. We shouldn't just take the messages that we hear and just treat them as if they're gospel. We should be willing to challenge those messages. We should be willing to challenge any claims that any speaker makes. That includes me. That also includes Colin, too. So, um, But, you know, I, I think that that's a beautiful thing about what we're called to be as the church, is that we don't have to have everything just tidy and neat. There can be beauty in the struggle, in the disagreement, and in the wrestling. So let's continue to challenge, let's continue to question, let's continue to confront the teachings that are presented to us in order to move in a more faithful direction towards King Jesus and the proper gospel. And so with that, let let me open us in prayer. Creator God, I thank you for life. I thank you for the opportunity of breath in our lungs. I thank you for the opportunity to know you and to be more intimately known by you. Father, I pray that in our time together this morning and our wrestling through the text, that we can come together as the family of Christ and know you more intimately and in turn be more intimately known by you. I pray all this in the name of King Jesus. Amen. So here is today's hot take. Is faith what we think? If I were to ask you the question, what is faith? How would you go about defining it? Would you use words like belief or maybe internal trust? Does faith mean correct theological thinking or internally affirming a specific set of doctrines or dogmas? Does it mean belief without evidence or proof? Is it the opposite of doubt? Does it mean to blindly trust? Or can it be equated with intellectual assent? Does it mean the belief in the existence of God? Is it one's personal relationship with Jesus Christ? What I hope to demonstrate this morning is that while a few of these common definitions and presuppositions might get at least a piece of what faith is, they are all half-truths at best, if not some of them fallacies at worst. There are key elements missing from the discussion that require further inspection to truly understand what words like faith and belief would have meant to an ancient audience, and even more specifically, what it would have meant to the original audience of the New Testament. And it's here in this tension between modern and ancient understandings of faith and faith language that I want to address a great divide in our contemporary understandings Namely, the divide between belief and practice. I think the uh, introduction to Sky Jathani's book, uh, What If Jesus Was Serious? A Visual Guide to the Teachings of Jesus We Love to Ignore, illustrates this divide well. He states, several years ago, I taught a class at my church on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' most famous message which contains many of our faith's most important ethical teachings. On the first day of the class, after reading the full sermon together, I asked the students, how many of you think Jesus actually expects us to live out these commands? No one raised their hand. I was surprised, so I dug deeper. I asked, why shouldn't we take the Sermon on the Mount seriously? It's impossible to obey, one person said. 
No one can live like this. Jesus was just showing how we all need God's grace, another student shared. He was illustrating what a perfect life looks like and how none of us can attain it. In their view, Jesus must have preached this sermon while frequently winking at his disciples to communicate, don't worry, you don't have to take any of this seriously. Never mind that he ended the sermon with a story about the perils of not obeying his words. Today, many Christians simply dismiss the Sermon on the Mount as irrelevant, even as they stridently proclaim their allegiance to Jesus in the culture. Jathani's example is so striking to me because I think it it gets at the heart of today's hot take, but even more, I think it gets at the heart of why so many people are turned off by the church. Jathani himself accurately concludes the following. What if the underlying malady afflicting Christians today isn't that we take Jesus too seriously, but that we failed to take him seriously enough? What if much of the culture's judgment of Christians isn't the result of obeying Jesus, but the result of Christians ignoring him? Somewhere along the lines of modern Christianity, a great divide has snuck in and separated our faith and belief from our practice the internal from the embodied. It seems that the Christian life in the modern church is no longer characterized by obedience to the commands of Jesus, but instead is based upon internal and on occasion verbal affirmations of a few key doctrines, doctrines that sometimes have no true bearing on the way that we live. But why is this the case? Even more important for our discussion, is this what the authors of the biblical text envision when speaking on matters of faith and belief? Is this what they meant when they were using faith language? What I want to submit to you today is that at least part of our problem for this separation of belief and practice is a fundamental misunderstanding of what faith and belief are. How many times have we heard passages like John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes... In him should not perish but have eternal life. Or how about Romans 10, 9? That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Or how about Ephesians 2, 8 through 9? For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. All you have to do is believe. That's what we get from these verses. All you have to do is have faith. You don't have to do anything. Nothing is required of you. We have sold a gospel that requires nothing on the part of the believer. In the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we have exchanged a costly grace for a cheap grace. We have, again, just sold a gospel that really, really requires nothing in response. And I think here we also have another instance of a half-truth. In addition to the problematic nature of ripping these verses out of their original context in order to serve our Western systematic theologies, the other problem that follows is whether or not we are meeting these texts on their own terms. Furthermore, when we read words like faith, are they bringing to mind the same definitions, connotations, and nuances that ancient audiences would have heard and understood within the original languages? With this as our background, let's take a look back at our primary text. Again, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. But I really want to focus our attention, because we don't have time, 
I really just want to focus our attention on one key phrase in verse 5. Verse 5 reads, through whom, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. That phrase, obedience of faith, or in the Greek, hupakoen pisteos, is very key to Paul's understanding of the gospel and Paul's letter to the Romans. To provide a quick summary of verses one through four, Paul is introducing his letter to the Christians in Rome, noting his status as a servant of Christ Jesus, along with his apostolic credentials, followed closely by an explicit definition of the gospel. After Paul defines the gospel as the promise of God carried out through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, through his resurrection from the dead, and subsequent ascension to the status of son of God and power, Paul then moves to speak about the byproduct of the gospel, namely the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And it's here that we explicitly see that the gospel and by extension Paul's apostolic calling has a purpose, namely the obedience of faith. This phrase is so critical to Paul's message in Romans that he actually states it again at the end of the letter. We read in Romans 16, verses 25 through 27, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for so long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. So here's the question. What does Paul mean by this phrase? And how is faith related to obedience? It's important to note here that the word that we translate as faith is not actually a spiritual word or a religious word in its original context. In fact, it's a common word used throughout Greco-Roman literature. This word in question is pistis. And it's important that we properly contextualize and define this word based upon its ancient usage in the ancient sources. For starters, the industry standard New Testament Greek to English lexicon, affectionately known as BDAG, traces a variety of usages in the ancient sources. Among them are trust, faithfulness, fidelity, oath, pledge, and confidence. Furthermore, we have evidence from ancient texts written by Aristotle, Plutarch, Philo of Alexandria, Seneca, Cicero, and Pliny the Younger, just to name a few, that use pistis and pistis language to denote pledges of good faith, commitments, vows, reliability, loyalty, guarantee, proof, piety, and allegiance. Additionally, in his book, Pistis and Pistuane, as faith terminology in the writings of Flavius Josephus in the New Testament, author and scholar Dennis R. Lindsay isolates six uses of pistis in the works of the first century Jewish historian Josephus. The first among them is trust, faith, and confidence, not too far off from our modern understandings. But then we move to number two, loyalty and fidelity. Number three, pledge that gives rise to confidence or trust. Number four, that which is entrusted. Number five, a treaty or other assurance of political protection. And six, belief in the specific sense of credibility or provided evidence. If it has not yet become apparent 
Pistis is a very flexible term with a somewhat wide semantic range based upon its ancient usage. Yet despite this wide and rich semantic range demonstrated in our ancient sources, most translations of the New Testament typically render pistis as faith, and its verb form, which is pistuo, is rendered as believe, with only a few minor exceptions. My question this morning about that is why? Why has such a semantically rich word been watered down to internal trust at best and cognition at worst? Furthermore, we, can we afford to mistranslate and misunderstand a word that is so prolific throughout and foundational to the biblical text? In his book, Paul in the Language of Faith, New Testament scholar Nija K. Gupta comments on this issue regarding the letters of Paul. It is remarkable how resistant modern English translations are to rendering pistis as faithfulness in Paul. My impression is that there is an ideological concern to preserve the non-works passive righteousness theology that can be read into Paul's anthropological use of pistis. In other words, Gupta believes the culprit of this linguistic discrepancy is none other than Protestantism's never-ending battle of faith over works. This has forced our translations to reduce pistis and pistis language to definitions that can only be internal, individual, and passive for fear of potentially being construed as some kind of quasi-legalistic religiosity. But in doing so, we have robbed ourselves of the richer understandings and meanings of pistis. For Paul and other New Testament authors, this word is so much more dynamic, active, and relational than we tend to give it credit for. As New Testament scholar N.T. Wright states in his biography on Paul, the word pistis could mean faith in the sense of belief, what was believed as well as the fact of believing, or indeed the act of believing, which already seems quite enough meaning for one small word. But pistis could also point to the personal commitment that accompanies any genuine belief. In this case, that Jesus was now Lord, the world's rightful sovereign. Hence, the term means loyalty or allegiance. This was what Caesar demanded from his subjects. For Paul, the word meant all of that, but also so much more. For him, this believing allegiance was neither a simply a religious stance nor a political one. It was altogether larger in a way that our language, like Paul's, has difficulty expressing clearly. When we read passages like Romans 1 that include faith language, we need to retrain ourselves to upload these ancient connotations and nuances, such as allegiance, fidelity, and loyalty. Paul's use of pistis in Romans 1 should not be limited to individual cognition, but rather it should be understood as an invitation into the very life of God. For Paul, the gospel has a purpose and an intended response. That purpose and response is encapsulated in the Greek word pistis. Embodied trust, believing allegiance, active loyalty. Now, I'm sure that I am going to receive some objections to this claim. For instance, does not Paul himself advocate for justification by faith apart from works? And does not Paul himself appeal to passages like this morning's Old Testament reading of Habakkuk 2.4, where the text states that the righteous will live by faith? 
For instance, later on in Romans 1, we read in verses 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, pistuanti, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in, the right, for in this, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, pisteos, for faith, pistin, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith, pisteos. Romans 1, 16 through 17, Paul again quoting from Habakkuk 2, 4. So how can we expect Paul's usage of pistis in texts like these to mean something like allegiance, loyalty, or faithfulness? What I would contend is that in instances such as this, that is exactly what Paul means. It's exactly what he has in mind. That is exactly the background for why he goes to Habakkuk chapter 2. When Paul is quoting from Habakkuk 2.4, the Hebrew word behind the word faith is emunah, which is primarily translated as firmness, steadfastness, fidelity, and faithfulness throughout the entirety of the Hebrew Bible. Just like Pistis, this has an active and an embodied component. Paul does not envision some kind of passive internal belief system here. Paul envisions an entire life of faithful living, both on the individual level as well as the communal. If you're here this morning, you might be wondering, why does this matter? Why should I care about this at all? Why do I need to listen to this crazy Bible nerd go on and on about some random Greek word that I had no interest in before coming this morning? Um, Let me answer these questions with a story. Some of you know I work for an international nonprofit based in North Charleston, one of the regional directors of our country programs. He shared a story with us a few weeks ago that I think demonstrates the severity of why we desperately need to correct our misunderstandings and potential mistranslations. This director presented on the percentages of evangelical Christians in Latin America and the Caribbean. He described that while the overall number of evangelicals in several Latin American and Caribbean countries has significantly increased, economic disparity and social injustice has remained the same. He continued to describe that while countries like Honduras and Guatemala have some of the highest percentages of evangelical Christians in their region of the globe, they also had the highest rates of violence, the greatest economic inequality, and the highest poverty rates in Central America. The director continued by describing the religious-secular divide. There are many who attend church, take part in the sacraments, and proclaim Christ, yet this has no effect on the rest of their lives. They have compartmentalized their faith to a certain religious sector reserved only for Sundays and maybe on special occasions, but it has no effect on how they live in the day-to-day. The most striking and disturbing part of his story came in his retelling of a specific episode in Guatemala. He described a story of a woman that was recently kidnapped. She begged her kidnappers not to hurt her or do her any harm on the basis of her Christian faith. She claimed she was a Christian, brought no one harm herself, and so she hoped that this would stay her kidnapper's hand and prevent any harm from coming to her. Her kidnappers responded to her pleas and said to her shock, we too are Christians. What does that have anything to do with why we're kidnapping you and why we're harming you? I think this story really haunts me a lot. Because even though I know it's an extreme example, I think that we have missed the boat on what faith really is and what we're called to as the church, what we're called to as the body of Christ. 
We need to ask ourselves, in what world did we imagine that Christianity as a religion, faith, was separate from the way that we should be in the world? When did we begin to believe the lie that we can be followers of Jesus, yet neglect any ethical obligation of a transformed life? Did we at some point start buying into a gospel that really requires nothing of us at all, including spiritual renewal and transformation? Well, I don't want to negate the supremacy of Christ, the sovereignty of God, and the power of the Spirit. It is time that we realized the gospel demands a response. That response looks like good news to the poor. It looks like liberation for the oppressed. It looks like justice for the marginalized. And this embodied faithful obedience is supposed to be carried out by Christ's body on the the earth, the church. The last thing that we need is more Christian lip service. And that includes me, and that includes this sermon. Culture has rightfully called our bluff time and time again. We need to practice what we preach. Better yet, we need to actively embody the gospel with our lives. What we need are communities of faithful disciples of Jesus Christ who have committed themselves to live life of faithfulness modeled after Jesus in the way that he lived. When we start to truly embody these beliefs, that is when the kingdom of God truly becomes a reality. The obedience of faith, faithfulness, may I say, Among the nations is internal transformation with external manifestation. It is a both and. I don't want to negate the idea of trust and belief, but if it is not accompanied accompanied by embodied practice, it is not faith and it is not true belief. As Dallas Willard once famously put, he says, um, it's one of my favorite quotes of all time, belief is not when you say that you believe something, Belief is not even when you think that you believe something. Belief is when you act as if it were true. And I think that that's what we really need. We need Christians that actually live their belief, live their faith, and actually give allegiance and loyalty to the risen king. That is what's truly going to be transformational for our world. That's going to be truly transformational even for our communities here. How can we see our community transformed? How can we see our cities transformed? By embodying the gospel and living it out with our actual lives. That's the kind of transformation this world needs. Fully embodied allegiance to King Jesus that actively participates in the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Just as we say in the prayer every single week. Let us, as followers of Christ, seek to embody the gospel with our whole selves and with our entire lives. Will you pray with us? Beautiful, y'all. And um, they did not have mercy on you for these questions, Ben. Not, Not at all. Lucky for you, you only have to answer three.
Y'all sent in more questions for Ben than I've ever received any questions ever any Sunday. Okay. How do we actively pursue proper faith when proper faith requires unappealing surrender? It's mm. a good question. I think that surrender is always a negative um, word for us in our modern sensibilities of the word. I think that um, when the New Testament authors use language of surrender and concepts of surrender, it, it would have been greatly expected within the social relational dynamics of their culture to understand that there are those who have power above others and everything's based on honor, everything's based on status. And so the idea of surrender honestly wasn't even a choice. It's kind of expected by the majority of citizens and non-citizens and definitely for slaves. Um, but I think, you know, for, for at least our modern context, um, I think personally that there's a lot of joy in surrender. Um, I think that, you know, we're, we're always limited by our metaphors, we're always limited by our language to some extent, but I think that, you know, Paul and the other New Testament authors look at Jesus and they look at God as the great Lord, um, you know, I know this goes against modern sensibilities, but the word behind Lord, kurios, could also mean master in a master-slave relationship. And um, I think for, for us in our context, obviously, we have, for very good reason, we have very negative ideas of slavery, and they had very, is awful in the ancient world as well. Um, but I think they're playing on a metaphor to talk about God as the proper one to give surrender and allegiance to. And so I think in some ways... Surrender can be quite oppressive in how we view it, but I think that in a lot of ways it can be very liberating in a, in a different way because I know we talked about this before. In one way or another, you're, you're going to serve somebody, whether it's yourself, whether it's your own sensibilities, whether it's somebody, you know, a different master or lord. Um, so I think surrender can actually be very liberating. So... Okay, we know that many of our problems are part of our systems. How do we enact our faith in Christ and feel like we are doing enough? Mm. That's, uh, I feel like that's a, it's a good question, and I think it's very rightly deserved question based on the sermon. Um, I think in a lot of ways, when we talk about faith, when we talk about how they would have understood this word, I think in, in some ways we start to think of it more transactionally, but in context, it's actually a relational word, you know? And so, like, I, I don't think about my relationship with my wife as transactional. I don't think of it in terms of I have to do enough to earn her love or earn her favor. I don't have to do enough. Uh, I don't have to merit that. I don't have to perform that. Um, but there is an expectation that I probably should do things that show her I love her. Um, I can't say that I love her and completely ignore her and not talk to her. Or maybe even a, a, a terrible example would be, a, you know, somebody that would even abuse their spouse. You know, it's like there, there is an expectation of an, of an embodied relationality between two parties. And so I think that it, it's, we can often get sucked up into this idea of, we have to do enough or, you know, how can we be feeling like we're doing enough for the Lord, you know, and, and it's almost driven by guilt. But that doesn't seem to be how the New Testament authors view faith and faith language. They see it as a joy to be able to respond to God as, as the great giver um, of the gospel of Jesus. And so I think 
Um, you know, that looks different for everybody in different contexts. I mean, there's, there's people out there who can be faithful to Jesus, but who may not even have the ability to walk. There's people that ha- can be faithful to Jesus and, and may not even feel like getting out of bed that day. And you can still be faithful, but in different contexts and different ways. And think it's just being aware of how faithfulness looks within your own context and within your own life. Because it, it's not a one-size-fits-all kind of category. Okay, last one real quick. Sorry, I'm holding y'all over, but there's so many questions. Okay, how does the conversation around faith and trust impact people who are struggling to remain in the faith or in the Christian community? Mm. I think for me, I, I think about, back to that opening of Sky Jathani's um, example, I think that, you know, maybe some of y'all can uh, agree with this, but I mean, the church has long been accused of not practicing what they preach. I mean, how many, I, I can't even begin to number the amount of pastors that preach the, the gospel um, on Sunday and then go do terrible things. And it, it has no bearing on the way that they live. And, and, and even that, that proliferates into the congregations themselves. And so it's, it's really, in a lot of ways, I see this as, as rescuing that idea that, you know, the, the culture's charge to the church, which I believe is a very good charge, is that we look nothing like Jesus. That, you know, the church, unfortunately, because we've lived so much into this idea of belief and faith as all that's needed and doesn't have anything to do with our embodied practice, that we no longer look like Jesus. And so that's why people will say things like, I can't tell you how many times I've had the conversation. I have no problem with Jesus. It's just the church is horrid. The church is awful. I don't want to be any part of the church because they look nothing like Jesus. And I think it's, it's trying to understand the relational dynamic of it's not performance-based, but there is an expectation for us to actually look a little bit like the person we claim to follow. So. Well, thank you so much for that, Ben. And everybody, yes, give him a round of applause. And for all of you that didn't get your questions answered, Ben will be in the hall after this. Please find him. I'm sure he would love to talk for hours and hours and hours. Oh, thank he would. You, ben. He would. Um, 